Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. We've been listening back to some of the talk shows at 9 a.m. during 2022 that the producers and I thought were the most memorable. I picked two that deal with art and entertainment. The first one that stands out to me is the show we did with three stand-up comedians. It was Election Day, and things were kind of tense throughout Minnesota and the nation, so we thought it would be a good idea to lighten the mood. Who better to do that than people who make a living making folks laugh? Have you ever heard someone say, if I don't laugh, I'll cry? Well, are you in need of a laugh right now? That day, we talked about the power of humor, how laughter can be like medicine. During the last few years, it may have often felt like there was not a lot to joke about. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, racial reckoning, inflation, partisan politics are just a few of the many stressors in our lives. But Minnesota comedians are finding humor and making audiences laugh, even in the most difficult of times. The Twin Cities metro area is known for its vibrant comedy scene. Did you know that? That day, three comedians joined me in the studio to describe how they're finding ways to make people laugh no matter what is going on in the world. My guests that day were Ali Sultan, Maggie Ferris, and Shiloh Blake. All are stand-up comedians in the Twin Cities. Listen. The past few years have been extremely difficult. We've lived through a worldwide pandemic. People are struggling with their mental health. So much just seems really, you know, uncertain. Um, not funny, right? <laughs> so I'd like to hear from each of you on this. Um, when you think about the role of comedy during uncertain and sometimes dark times, how would you describe like what it can can do for us? Nick, do you want to go first? Uh, well, I think it's such an important tool to, uh, you know, I mean, medically speaking, doesn't it bring up your endorphins and your serotonin levels and it just helps you to feel better mm. uh, laughing and enjoying. And uh, I mean, I think it can change your mindset a little bit and give you a break from all that heavy stuff that you have to deal with all day in and day out. You know, I mean, life can be heavy. There's a lot going on. And mm -hmm. to escape that for a little while, I, I don't think is an unhealthy thing. I think it's helpful. It's like taking a deep breath sometimes. Ali? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually, I'm, uh, I'm, I think about 10 years in and I'm just starting to realize the impact of humor to a crowd. Especially, I think, after lockdown, I'd, like, do a show and then, you know, I might critique my performers and think, oh, that joke didn't work that well and whatever. And then somebody will come up to you and be like, hey, I haven't laughed in a year. Oh. And they'll be in tears. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, oh, and then I think about how often I laugh. I don't laugh as a comedian. Funny enough, I don't laugh that often. Only few people that can make me, like, laugh hard. And so mm -hmm. most of the time, I'm just like, you know, I, I recognize that something is funny. You know I mean? I'm smiling inside. But to, to 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 imagine that I can sit down and laugh for a whole 90 minutes, that would be so amazing. What we mm -hmm. provide is very important, I think. I agree. And I think so. Very cathartic. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I agree with Maggie. It's completely medical. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, I'm a doctor now. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and, and Elise, right, like everyone who who has come up to me after shows since the pandemic and thanked me and told me similar things. It has been absolutely life-changing. And I think it also gives us a venue to contextualize some of what's going on. I know in my material, I have about seven minutes where I go really hard into some of my losses and experiences from the pandemic. And one night, not only was an audience member about in tears telling me how that helped her think about 
and contextualize her experiences. But I just like went to my car and started crying as well. And that's when I really realized mm-hmm. kind of what my mission is with this. And exactly like mm-hmm. just I wish I could just echo what Aaliyah is saying. Like mm-hmm. there's a there, we're doing a service. It's it's really important. Right. And we, it's we're given a service. And we're, we're getting paid like teachers out here. <laughs> 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 we're getting pay, paid in drink tickets and Man. high fives. I'm sick of it. <laughs> I don't even drink. So I have to like uh-huh. try to sell my drink tickets <laughs> on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extra yeah. cash. Yeah. yeah. So I have very limited knowledge about how the path for someone uh, to get onto a stage to do stand-up live, you know, that Mm. just seems um, very intimidating. And I know people have, like, all kinds of stories about how they decide uh, to to do this. So I want to know, like, what drew you to comedy personally? How did you, that that decision, like, I think I'm funny? (laughs) Or was it other people saying, you know, Maggie, you're funny. You should do something with that. Yeah, Yeah, I think, um, you know, growing up, I was always kind of the goofball, the class clown, and and always had some antics going on and stuff. But I never really thought about doing stand-up until... And I watched stand-up, and I enjoyed it. um, But my sister started working at a comedy club and was waitressing there. So I would go down and hang out and watch shows and stuff. And that's when I finally said, oh, I think I could do this. Acme. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, she used crazy. to waitress there. And then, uh, of course, you <clears throat> think it's so easy. You're like, oh, I can do that. That's no problem. But you get up there and it's a whole different ball game, you know? And I think I started at their open mic and I did, I did so bad my first time that not only did I not get any laughs, I got groans. Oh, wow. <laughs> like it was oh, that really? bad. Minnesota, it was so ugly. Minnesotans are real nice. They don't groan. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. It was crickets the whole time and then a few groans and, <laughs> It took me six months to try again, and I don't even know. Wow. There was some sort of drive in me to say, I I know I can do better than that. <laughs> right. But when you get a, a, a groan, yeah. <laughs> it helps you grow, though, right? Is, is that helpful? It made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, it, it made me write more and, and try to do better, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. It triggered something that's very important for comics is resilience. Yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. For sure. And Shallow... I- we hear about bombing. I guess that's what it's called. Uh, have you had moments where you've bombed? Are, are you funnier than Maggie? <laughs> Am I, no, I'm not funnier than Maggie. No, well, Maggie I just Maggie, want to. Maggie's we'll the get, queen. Man. Yeah, she's, she's the goat she's, she's the for vet. sure. Stab now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, everyone bombs. I uh, think for oh, me, I've, I've seen Shayla bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone's seen Shayla bomb. <laughs> what happens in that moment when when it's is crickets and people are looking at you are like, oh, that was. It's very poor taste. Well, for me personally, yeah. that's when I settle in. Like the worst shows are the most valuable shows, and I tape everything I do. So I go home and I study that, and then I compare them oh. to past tapes. And it's like, what was going on for me in that moment? Is there something from my personal life affecting me? Am I? Where's my energy? Where's my pace? And that's when I, when I have a bad show, that's when I get to work. Mm. Mm. It's right. not always your fault, though. Some, some you know when you start comedy they go it's never the crowd's fault it is, it <laughs> sometimes. is. sometimes it is sometimes it's our fault. the last, it is. The last it show is. I did was um, uh, if you want to hear a fun story I would this like a fun story Saturday um, I was doing a corporate show meaning I have to do a clean 45 minute set for a corporate and, and, and clean not only in sense of material I, I can't have any edge I can't be like stopping hecklers or being you know what I mean like the things that I would do at a comedy club um, so it's uh, it's called Girls Get Away, and it's uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a bun- most people about my mom's age who you know probably needed the weekend off, and mm-hmm. they get on this giant bus, 
and they start pre-gaming at 7 a.m. By 9.30 a.m., they are completely drunk. By 5.30 p.m., I have to do a show for these <laughs> ladies who are now They're ready. wasted. <laughs> Living the dream. And we're all in the middle of South Dakota. Uh, <laughs> it gets better and better and better. It gets better and better. And then uh, I, I go up uh, after like – it took like 40 minutes to get them to sit down. And then I go up and uh, immediately I'm like, I'm from Yemen. And someone goes, Indiana. <laughs> You're from Indiana. And it was like every sentence wow. had a response from someone. And oh. they would ha- need clarifications because they were drunk. I got pretzels thrown at me. Wow. Um, oh, my God. Uh, it, was it can get ugly. Okay. And, I love pretzels. And, and, uh, and then <laughs> my favorite part about this whole thing, there's somebody who was like dead center and was like dead asleep. And I've never thought I'd be so grateful to someone to see someone asleep at a show. I was like, that's one less heckler. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Sure. I'm like, well, please, all no more of you questions. go to sleep. I want to so, yeah. pause you. I should let yeah. our listeners know. We have uh, some ep- excerpts, some clips from each each mm. one of you. We're going to hear you guys on stage performing. And, and Ali, I'm going to start with you here. Oh, wow. uh, you mentioned you were born in Yemen and yeah. you immigrated to the United States. I have my notes here when you were 15. Yemen, Indiana. Mm. Um, Yemen, Indiana. <laughs> was it, what was it like to move to Minnesota? Uh, I mean, since Yemen is also in the Midwest, I thought um, not a huge transition. We're doing the Indiana callback. Okay. Yeah. No, we're not. You're not talking oh, yeah, about we're Indiana. It in we're serious now? Okay. Okay. You're not talking about. You're, we're not talking about Indiana. But what was it like growing up in Minnesota when you came at Coming 15? Yeah, that's crazy. Cause I remember uh, the first country I've ever visited. I was like around seven, and my mom took me to Germany, mm-hmm. and um, it was the first time I saw snow. And I remember that day. Think I, I, I remember like crying and telling her like this is so magical. Uh, like I, w- I would love to see this forever. And then we moved to Minnesota, and I have been suicidal ever since. So. <laughs> Dreams come true. So well, the, the winter was rough to say the least. But everything you've else you've gotten is, used to it though. Yeah, not the really. I don't think though. anybody gets. <laughs> I appreciate it more. There's elements of the winter that I like. I sleep better when it's cold. Less bugs. You know what I mean. True, but I, the sun I think is essential. I think it's weird that we don't. Uh, right. Uh, I thought you were giving me the no, the no black I, power I, symbol. No, I'm not. I, I told <laughs> sorry, you about this. Yeah, I, I mentioned I want to play a clip of your stand up. So I'm, I'm letting the internet know. Let's okay. let's get ready to hear some of of, of Ali something here. Like, wow, let's play a clip of your stand up. <laughs> here you are performing in Utah uh-huh. uh, earlier this year. Oh yes, Utah, just like Yemen. I had to take ESL classes to learn English. Uh, and one day my instructor got off tangent and she started talking about the Middle East and 9-11, uh, my favorite topic. And <laughs> she looked at me, the only Arab kid in the class, and she said, they hate us because they're jealous of our freedom. They hate us because they're jealous of our freedom. That's what she said. And she kept staring and staring and staring, and that made me uncomfortable. And when I'm uncomfortable, I laugh. <laughs> I laugh out, like audibly, like I laugh loud. <laughs> and I laughed, but I laughed way too hard. <laughs> it didn't look like it was out of discomfort. It looked like I was plotting against the United States of America. <laughs> she said, they hate us because they're jealous of our freedom. And I was like, ha ha! <laughs> and people got quiet. <laughs> and, you know, we're all smart here. I don't think things are that, like, simple. I think that's naive to say. Because I've lived in the Middle East, I lived in Yemen, and we had the most freedom. Because we did not have an operating government. 
That is Twin Cities comedian Ali Sultan. Uh, so let's talk about um, how do we take things that are not funny and make them funny. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Terrorism. By the way, that's where is they, not funny. That's when they threw the pretzel at me. At oh, no <laughs> that's crazy. So, <laughs> so how funny. do you decide like what you can pull, pull together that would make people laugh? Uh, I mean, comedy is like I guess humor is sometimes a self uh, a defense. You know what I mean? And that's a defense mechanism. It's a way. Sometimes, like I see memories as a way. It's kind of like a crime scene, and then I add humor to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And to I try to like mm-hmm. kind of get over it or process it. Like that's a, a thing that happened. I was in an ESL class and my teacher said that thing to me and it, and it hurt my feelings that day. So I go back to that. But I was like, that's an intriguing thing to see. How do I process this? And then it's just I'm trying to like process a memory, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then I fill it with humor because I'm a funny person. Mm-hmm. And then now it's a laughable thing. And now, you know, it's a joke, but it has a little message in there. It doesn't necessarily need a message, but... Um, I guess that's, you know, it goes topic to topic. Some jokes are just jokes and some jokes are just, you know, uh, you know, an, an unpleasant feeling and, or and memory. I'm visualizing it. Like I can see uh, a young version of you in class. I'm like imagining along with you yeah, as you're telling yeah. the joke. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, you, you know, that, that, that made an impression on me that day and, and it stuck with me. And then so like when I thought about it as a, an adult, as a comic, I was like, oh, yeah, that's funny. And then you look at the irony. You kind of like you go back in time and sometimes you're like, how do I become the hero of the story? How do I make per- how do I make fun of this? I'm I'm seeking justice in this particular <laughs> right. thing, and then I break down what you're saying, and then I I, I come up with the rest of it. That's you did sometimes. a great job in that joke Thank of you. like you know touching on some some sticky things but yeah. bringing your perspective to it and making it hilarious you know oh, thank it's you. very thank great you so much that means a lot so maggie you have gotten a lot of recognition in the lgbtq comedy scene uh, a few years ago you were named one of the funniest lesbians in america by curve magazine and you won the advocate magazine's national search for the f- next funniest queer comedian what do those uh, titles mean to you well, I love the second one that I won the funniest queer comedian because they never did that contest again. So I think I can oh, you own shut it, it down. forever. Yep, wow. Yep, it's all mine forever. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that kind of stuff is fun. You know, it's fun to receive accolades and, and, and win contests and stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. contests are so weird because it just depends on like who is judging or who's in the yeah. audience or did you stack the audience and is it based on audience participation and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But, um, there was like a surefire winner in that contest, and I, I kicked her butt. So that was really fun for me. <laughs> well, I want to play a clip of one of your sets from a few months ago. Uh, and this is you talking about the acronym LGBTQ+. Yes. There's a lot of letters now. There's a lot of letters. You keep adding letters. LGBTQNMOPLS tour plus minus percent pi symbol. I can't. I'm trying. To, I'm trying to be open and and keep up, but it's it's hard. I I would have vetoed pi symbol, but I forgot to go to the meeting. And, um, they call it. They call it the alphabet mafia. <laughs> Basically, what they're saying is, we'll take anyone in our club except straight white men. (laughs) Taste the rainbow. Don't you guys worry, though. You're still king of the mountain, okay? Like, we're surrounding the mountain arm in arm like a United Colors of Benetton ad ready to charge. 
but you're still king of the hill. That's a, a reference you only get if you're over 45. <laughs> that is Twin Cities comedian Maggie Ferris. And uh, Maggie, you've been co- doing comedy now for more than 20 <clears throat> years. Have you seen changes wow. in the industry? Or- oh, that's a great question. And absolutely. I mean, when I first started, it was dominated by straight white men you know Mm -hmm. it was 95 percent of the comics and i feel like there's been a huge shift in diversity and um you know even women comics and gay comics and just all kinds of people are now welcome in the scene and um it is much less dominated by straight white men. what do you think happened uh, to create that change that people became more vocal or I, I think people did become more vocal, but I think industry started saying, oh, this could be valuable. This this mm. is, um, you know, I think people are interested in this. Yeah. And there was just sort of, uh, you know, with like Ellen coming out and all all these mm-hmm. people coming out, there was quite a movement to be more accepting of diversity. And it slowly, you know, people pushed their way in there and it, it was accepted, which mm. I think is a great thing and a needed thing. And Charlotte, did that make an impact on you when you saw more uh, diverse comedians, more more women, more people of color? Or were you thinking like, oh, then maybe I have a place in this too? Oh, absolutely. I think I'm probably the youngest person here, at least in comedy years. And um, I think so for me starting, it was it was really um, easy to see myself. And there's also a great producer in, in the Twin Cities, Sarah McPeck, who creates all kinds of uh, queer and diversity platforms that gave me a platform to develop um, at times when I wasn't getting stage time in other venues. Uh, let's take a phone call from a listener right now in Edina. We have Rachel on the phone. Good morning, Rachel. And what did you want to share with us as we talk about comedy? Hi, I want to thank you for bringing up this topic on today of all days. Um, and uh, my little brother is Nick Swartzen, uh, so a local comedian and, you know, uh, beyond. But I, I just wanted to uh, make a comment about how hard comics work to create their shows and mm-hmm. how generous it is for them to get up there and give us everything that they've got. Um, I read somewhere that adults are more apt to say that's funny than they are to actually laugh. And when you go to a comedy show, and you're able to actually laugh. Um, it is because of the hard work, the dedication, the craft um, that the comedians put in to really exploit the absurdities of the world that we all live in on a daily basis. Mm. Um, Rachel, stay on the line because the guests are all nodding. Have you heard uh, of her little brother, Nick Swartzen? Have oh, you yeah. heard he's of more him? Of a, oh, he's big time. He's yeah. less, like, less of a local comic or more of a beyond comic for sure yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> nick is a is he's in a lot of the adam sandler movies is a he and david very talented Spade. very funny yeah oh amazing he's a he's a legend, grandma's boy legend Come in on. minnesota mm-hmm. i sure. love nick he yeah he Fun started guy. here he's just hilarious he's mm-hmm. the only person i've seen that just started comedy and immediately just took oh, well, off you guys started around the same time yeah he That's started insane. like right before me and yeah. it was the fastest kind of trajectory i've yeah. ever seen and you, it makes sense when you see him on stage i've yeah. seen I, I was lucky enough to see nick uh, workshop some new stuff last time i was in town and yeah, it's just uh, full of charisma and so his sister is saying uh 
that's a lot of work that goes into this. And, oh, and absolutely. Would you echo that? That, <clears throat> that like, what is a day like for you in terms if you haven't if you know you have a date or you've been booked for something? Where does the process start uh, as far as okay, what what who's the audience? I mean, is that what the first thing you look at? Who's the audience and what might appeal to them? For sure. And I mean, there's so much work with choosing what set you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, like Shiloh was talking about, like I constantly have kind of a 45 minute hour set that I'm trying to take out the old stuff and put new stuff in. So I'll sneak five, 10 minutes of new stuff in. And like Shiloh, I always record everything and analyze Mm -hmm. it and see which words work. And I mean, even one word you can take out and change and it makes a huge difference. So, And and if you can do the same set and it would work, and if you do the same, you can, like say you have four shows in the same room, different crowds, and, and the results will be different every night. Because the people are different. Absolutely. The people, right. the, 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 you know, there's never constant variables in comedy, you know. Yeah. It's and that's people part, take part it, of the fun you, of it, yeah, too. Yeah. You know, I like that. And the frustration. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, Shiloh, do you, do you find politics to be funny? Uh, politicians to be funny sometimes? In general, no. But I think comedians do a good job of adding the humor to it. Right. Um, that's, I think that's one of the things Ali was talking about where this isn't funny at all. How do yeah. we... How do we sit down and, and make jokes out of it? Some things are like become exhausting to listen to. Like, you know, Trump jokes became very tiresome at one point, you know. Shiloh, we've, we've heard from Maggie. We've heard from Ali on stage. We're going to hear from you now. Um, your, your bio says that you like to find humor in life's awkward moments. What, mm. what are some examples? What are, what are awkward moments? Oh, for me, all of them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> where, do, where do we begin? What? Just trying to get out of bed in the morning can be awkward at times. It's like my bed sheets are fighting me to get the bed ma- yeah everything i do is a struggle so mm. and you're not even 50 yet wait till you turn oh, 50 not, close. not, not even close bed. not even close <laughs> Gu- guess how old she is this is a fun game oh, oh. that is a fun game how, how old are you oh no, I, you gotta guess. guess take a guess i don't want to do that no no like what guess <laughs> I, I, what she looks like oh okay for our listeners i think you look 23 to me wow okay, wow. okay tell her amazing I'm, I'm 33 isn't that oh. insane yeah. so i get that a lot like i'll be on stage and i'm telling i'm sober so i talk about my journey into mm. sobriety i talk about my all these life things like divorce mm. and stuff yeah. and people will be like what no like the, it's hard for people to believe me you're in so. high school how i know you, how'd you do all that why, why, yeah. why did you get married so, at 16 huh? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that legal so looking back uh that that pain and that suffering it <clears throat> it, it, it is sort of a, a source for some of, of the humor that you are able to now share with the world? Of course, yep. Yeah. All right, well, let's listen to a clip of, of one of your uh, stand-up sets, uh, and uh, this is uh, uh, Shiloh Blake. Well, I uh, I went skydiving recently. <laughs> you guys, I went skydiving, and I wasn't scared at all, which terrified me. <laughs> Man, I should have been scared, you guys. When you get there, they make you watch a video um, that explains the paperwork you're about to sign where you literally sign away all of your legal rights. (laughs) A week later, I was like, did I overturn Roe v. Wade? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So, Shiloh. That's great. Shiloh Blake, you host Stand Up Saloon in at the Saloon in Minneapolis. Tell us more about that because we want to let people know, like, well, where do I want to? If I want to go, where would I go? Yeah, well, that's a great show. It's an open mic, um, and I host it with two other people, Betty Bang and Denzel Balin. And it is, uh, it's an open mic, but we feature comics every week. Um, so there's 
a guaranteed decent performance in there. And then we close with drag queens um, every week as well. So it's a nice, it's a, it's a, it's not a gay show, but it's at a gay bar. It's a very good, like, welcoming environment to work on things and get started and, and, and work out your material. And so I mentioned in the introduction that the the Twin Cities metro area, it's known for having a very active and vibrant comedy scene. Um, What do you think makes it special? Um, What is it about this environment compared to maybe some other parts of the country where it might be harder to break into stand up? What do you think, Maggie, you've been doing this for 20 years? Yeah, I think there are so many venues and places that you can go and work out your material. I mean, we just have so many open mics in different rooms and in breweries and little places like that. And, uh, the the audience up here tends to be very smart and um no, which yeah. is helpful yeah. seriously yeah. and they uh, they kind of know comedy in i mean i'm totally generalizing but you know they come out and they know how to behave and they know what to expect and so it's a great place to learn Tentive. and develop and 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 bounce off your material yeah. and and grow. Not naming names, but naming names. Uh, Who doesn't know how to behave? Oh, oh my man. God. Did, which, they, did I not tell you about that girl's state? getaway? <laughs> <laughs> that was in Utah, right? You know there's drinking no, at comedy is, clubs, yeah, don't yeah. yeah. People get I, wild. I would people say, get wild. Now that I've ventured out a little bit, yeah. Minnesota truly has one of the best crowds in the country. They're smart. They're so good. They're yep. attentive. They're polite. Yeah. It's nice. You know. And I think that helps foster an environment where you can grow, you know? I mean, yeah. you yes. definitely grow from the bad stuff, too, right. but it's just not as yeah. fun for we us. We have a decent-sized scene, but we don't have, like, the um, um, coasts pressure, right? Like, there's not, yep. like, industry. There's not, like, so people are allowed to be themselves, and they can experiment. They don't have to think about, oh, maybe there's an agent in the crowd or, mm-hmm. the, you know, a cast in person. So, and like, I, people just are – we have that way we have a lot more, like, unique comics. I think producers mm-hmm. around here, too, are very – open to you doing weird stuff or being a character yeah. or working you know just being odd which helps bring you back to something more solid you know mm-hmm. experimenting and trying different things and no one here is really against that and so mm-hmm. I think that's a really great way to grow as well. I want to read uh, a written comment uh, earlier uh, this person had to, to hang up on the phone but mm-hmm. left a message this is Mark in Manorville and Mark said uh, he called in to plug his favorite Twin Cities comedian Mark Poulos he said, Mark makes him laugh. I watch him online. When I'm feeling depressed, I love his stories. <laughs> Mark's great. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wait, wait. Mark who? Mark Poulos. Oh, my God. He's my favorite real estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Anne in Duluth uh, left a comment. She says, there's always something to make me laugh. This morning, I heard uh, the radio story on the air about Michigan voting for a new state bird. I love to vote for the warbler. There's always something to laugh about. Uh, is there always something to laugh about? Because, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, I, I, so. I, I need I to share. So. I was pretty I'll, upset I'll, last night. There was no Powerball yeah. winner. Oh, yeah. Right? It's and rigged. it's disappointing. It's just, like, just like the election. It's rigged. That's yeah. what I've been saying. I mean, but like, is that is that funny? Yeah, I asked Shiloh about politics. Do you you have you joked about politicians and, and what's happening with uh, elections I, or some, races over the years? Some, yeah, sometimes if I if like you said, if I have, I think a non-general unique take, I'll, I'll say it. Um, but I, I feel I, I can do it once and then I, I just feel burnt out from it. Yeah. What about race? Do you like? Oh yeah, I have a lot plenty, of comedians make of racial stuff jokes about uh, you know mm-hmm. being black or being mm-hmm. Asian or being biracial. That's uh, 
that can be tricky with the audience. It is very tricky. I have, uh, you know, my whole act is not that, but I've learned over time I have to like place it in certain, like I have to build trust with the audience because they expect a certain comedy from me when they see me. They're like, oh, I bet he's going to do a lot of race jokes. And then I just have to like sh- shatter that expectation, um, have them like learn my pattern of thought and like my perspective and like they understand these are jokes and then i uh, then i put it in the middle of my act or later into the act mm-hmm. and that's all trial and, then, and error wouldn't yeah. you say just like learning <clears throat> what what does all those things yeah. what shatters them what changes them mm-hmm. and and coming back to it you do a very nice job of oh, that as well thank yeah. you so much again that conversation with three twin cities stand-up comedians took place in early november of this year Another talk show from 2022 that I vividly remember was all about dance. I talked with two leaders of dance companies about the work they're doing to not only entertain audiences, but to educate and inform them about history and culture. They use the language of dance to communicate deep emotions and to build bridges between communities. My guests included Karen Charles, the Executive Artistic Director of Threads Dance Project. That's a contemporary company that she founded in 2011 to, quote, examine, expose, and celebrate the threads that connect us. I also talked with Aparna Ramaswamy, the Executive Artistic Director, Choreographer, and Principal Dancer with Ragamala Dance Company. Now, that company was founded by her mother, Rani, Back in 1992, their performances draw on classical Indian dance. Take a listen. I want to talk about what makes dance such a unique and beautiful art form. I've never been a dancer, but I've always enjoyed performances. And so, um, Aparna, tell me, what do you love about dance, uh, both performing it and, and watching it? Well, um, I'll start with watching it. And performing it actually, too, there is an immediacy and an embodied emotion that is captured in dance that I think we can't capture in any other art form. It's it's just incredible to see that kind of truth and honesty come from within. And it's also something that's extremely natural to every human being all over the world. So it's something that really connects us. Mm. And Karen, how do you describe what makes dance um, so special? Well, I think I'll start with watching it as well. I think dance allows us to viscerally connect with each other. As Aparna just mentioned, the emotion, you know, whether you know what you're looking at, you feel it. Mm-hmm. You understand it in some innate way. And um, also, we as humans began communicating by movement before we knew words. And so to me, it is one of the ancient forms of communication that I think we've often tried to forget mm-hmm. over centuries. Um, but it, it is the one form that I think truly connects our, our mind, body and soul together to communicate on that level that is innate to people that they sometimes often forget. As you say that, I'm thinking about babies. Like they will start moving and, and they'll move and rock to music when they hear it, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. Way before they mm-hmm. can talk, or right. Can, right? They're feeling something. Um, and so, you know, I also believe, you know, that dance can really play a role in helping us understand our history. Uh, it can help us create curiosity about other cultures. Have you found that to be true, Aparna? So absolutely. So in my form, it's the form itself is called Bharatanatyam. It's from the southeastern part of India, and it's one of eight classical forms that are from India. 
And it has a, a history that goes back 2,000 years to mythological times, and it has evolved through each practitioner. It has been passed on as an oral tradition. And so each person in a lineage understands it in their own way. They are the carrier of history and tradition, yet they make it completely contemporary by carrying it in their bodies. Mm -hmm. And now as we find ourselves moving to new homes and we find ourselves in a, in a diaspora, we find that we are understanding this cultural history and these traditions differently. And we are even more contemporizing it with our influences from the world around us. So for me, it's been a way to really understand my ancestors, where I come from, my bicultural existence, and put it out in the world that is uniquely an expression of my identity. Mm. And Karen, have you found that to be true, that, that dance can really help educate us and just open our minds to things? Oh, absolutely. And I think as um, it also allows me as a creator to bring forth my heritage and history. And I think about, though I use forms that, that are classically European, and I think I, I did that as, a, as an act of rebellion, in all honesty. Um, I was a ballet major. I was the only, there were two black ballet majors. Um, but the form itself, you know, it, it allows you to tell those stories and you innately bring yourself to it. You bring your history, you bring your experiences in life. <clears throat> For instance, I, I use a lot of music by African-American artists. I use, you know, the concept of call and response to create a piece once, you know, and, and people mm -hmm. are like, what is call and response? Well, the, you know, as a black person, we know that in the old churches in the South where my parents grew up, someone would sing something, someone would sing it back. And so all of these things you're able to share more broadly and teach people and and, and um, help them cross those cultural boundaries. Mm -hmm. And and I want to learn more too, or hear more about how you each discovered your love of dance. And, you know, Karen, you started taking dance lessons when you were just five years old, uh, growing up in uh, Georgia. And you've danced all the way through high school and into college. And, and what was it about dance that really uh, spoke to you when you were much younger? I just think the the beauty and the the ability to just say through my body things that perhaps I couldn't say with words. Um, and and it, it, it just filled me. You know, it gave me energy. I think I was also maybe a little hyperactive when I was a little child. And um, so movement was, good. I was, movement was good. It allowed me to burn off some of that energy. Mm -hmm. And then you went on. Uh, you had a fellowship um, uh, with uh, the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater in New York City. So what was that like? Oh. And what were you planning at that point? Well, at that point, I was planning to be there for the rest of my life. Um, because what I learned, I, I was mentioning that, you know, my family knew nothing about the dance world, the the, the concert dance world in the, in the United States. And often, you know, you audition you think you audition and you get in, but that usually doesn't work with most companies. You audition, they ask you to come to a summer program. So when I got to the Ailey summer program, I was like, this is it. This is it. And it was going really well. And I was selected as one of maybe 10 people to perform in the summer choreography piece, showcase piece. And everybody knew that those people get into the second company and then you go to the hopefully to the first company. And I had my second knee injury. I had, had knee surgery in college. And while I was at Ailey, I had I injured my other knee and was unable to perform and had to teach my part to the choreographer's assistant. And I cried for three weeks, but uh, I realized that wasn't my path. And now I think I'm on my path. And this clearly deeply saddens you, Aparna. You're shaking. You're like, the injuries. Oh, it's heartbreaking to hear this. 
Yeah, it is because that's your dream, but you recognize your body has limits. Right? Yes. Right. And so then you um, you set performance aside, went into education. You taught high school math and computer science for nine years. Yeah. Yeah. Opened a dance school at Atlanta and moved to Minnesota. What on earth brought you here to Minnesota, Karen? <laughs> Love makes you do crazy things. <laughs> I'm still married to him 34 years later. But yeah, my husband got an opportunity to come here. And actually, again, it was a great opportunity. I never knew how vibrant the arts community was yes. until I moved here. Mm-hmm. And to see the support for the arts and the variety of art forms and the way people can you know, be successful in presenting and producing work was just amazing and inspiring. And I'm, I'm glad I was a part of it. And then what's the story behind why you started a dance company? What happened? Oh, yeah. Well, I actually, when I graduated from college after my knee surgery, I wasn't dancing. And I wrote down some ideas about one day, maybe I'll start a dance company. It'll be called Threads. And I had written down all these concepts. I put it in a folder and stuck it in a drawer. And life happened. I got married. I had two kids. And then my father died. Uh, he was dying from cancer in 2010. And um, as as we had conversations with him, he told us that he'd always wanted to be a doctor. My father was a postal clerk my entire life. And um, hearing that, you know, just kind of struck me. And I thought, so suddenly I thought about, I don't want to be dying telling my children that there was this thing I wish I had tried to do. This dream you had on the shelf. Yeah, but right. I didn't. So I took the folder out of the drawer And my father left me $10,000. I don't know how he was able to do that. Um, And I had my first show. And what year was that again? In 2011. Yeah. And Aparna, you work closely with your mother, Ronnie, um, at Ragamala Dance Company. She brought you into dance. Tell me more about her and, and how that came to be. That is true. My mother, Rani Ramaswamy, is the founder of Ragamala Dance Company. And so in the late 70s, we immigrated from India to Minnesota. And she had studied dance as a child, just as many young girls do. And she stopped dancing when she got married. And when she moved, when we moved here to the United States and to Minnesota, we had a very, very small Indian community here. I think they were you know, a hundred Indians is what has how she describes it. If you think of the community now, oh, right. that's really hard to believe. What year was that? Nineteen seventy-eight. Okay, all right. And so uh, there, they, you know, people had learned that she had studied dance, and so she they asked her to teach her their children, and so she started to brush up again. Found out that she absolutely still carried this love for this dance form, and how how important that. That education could be to young Indians, uh, Indian girls here in this community. And so she started to teach and I started to study. I was five years old and I um, was dancing in the back and she said she never noticed or saw me because I wasn't a paying student. And so my grandmother. <laughs> Let me just be honest yeah, with you, baby. Mm-hmm. My grandmother told her to notice that I was learning all of the, the dances and I was, you know, showing a love for it. And I did. I absolutely, I think like Karen said, I mean, there's a, when you're five years old, you don't realize why you connect to something and why you love it. But there was definitely, I mean, a, a complete love and passion for it. And so um, we started to, dance together. My mother started to go back to India, study, and, you know, she really recognizes the classical art form that you must be trained, you must have a very solid foundation in this. So she started to study more, learn, gather materials. And then in 1984, we met the superstar dancer of my form. Her name is Alarmail Vali, and she lived in India, but she was at the University of Minnesota for a major residency. So we took 
uh, her workshop, her residency, and she told my mother that if my mother brought me, that she would teach me. And that changed our lives forever. So since that time, I spent four months a year in India, back and forth, uh, becoming her primary disciple and carrying on her lineage. She is still our teacher today. My mother and I studied together with her. Mm -hmm. And so that really formed a very Mm -hmm. special bond between us. We were much more colleagues and partners rather than mother and daughter, and or even more than mother and daughter. You you say this with a big smile on your Mm -hmm. face. So you truly enjoy it. We're very close. And we're very different personalities. So we balance each other out. And so her her um, career grew and she started to expand beyond the Indian community, work more in the mainstream dance community with this belief that this dance form has more to share. It can be a paradigm for the immigrant experience. It can be um, it can share cultural stories and the stories of your neighbors. So there's there's a, a great uh, potential there that she was very committed to, and I joined her on that path. And as you got older, Aparna, you started doing more choreography. And um, how has your approach, uh, th- does it differ from your mom's? You said you're different people. Well, I think when Ronnie was finding her creative voice um, in choreography, she was extremely inspired by the diversity of forms here in the Twin Cities. So she was very committed to doing collaborative work across genre. And at that same time, she was also very, very committed to providing access to non-Indian audiences. So having them understand the form, the lyrics, the themes, and so really, again, providing that very wide base to an audience. For me, I was very, very interested in going deep into the cultural traditions, into the literary, musical, dance traditions. And I think that's because I grew up partly here and in India, but there was a longing within me to connect to my Indian heritage and to do it in this extremely immersive way. Mm -hmm. And so we balance each other that way. There is a breadth and a depth that I think we both cover together, but we create works together. And she has so much cultural knowledge that I can tap into with her. And she sees a certain, um, I think, American uh, uh, freedom in me. And I think mm. we can mm-hmm. we can reach out and connect in those ways. In St. Paul, we've got Justin on the line. Good morning, Justin. And what do you want to share with us about dance? Good morning. I, one of my favorite things about dance is the connection that happens between the performer and the audience and the band. And one of the best performances I ever saw this happen was right at the Varsity Theater here in Minneapolis. In 2006, the Ultimate Lindy Hop Showdown, ULHS for short, uh, was hosted right here in the Twin Cities. And dancers from around the world were competing in swing dancing and also, you know, a, a famously American dance. But we had to bring this dance out of reti- retirement by, you know, in the 80s because it had almost died and nobody knew it. And then, uh, you know, 15, 20 years later here, we're competing in the Twin Cities and watching this happen live on stage. But what's so incredible about this, this form, this type of competition, is, is the energy. Like, I can still remember 25 years later <laughs> the, the screaming we did when a, a, a performer did something improvised that we had never seen before in this setting and competition setting. Like there's a movement where, you know, they're called aerials where people lift and throw their partners and you'll see those, you can see those in those clips, but like 
one of the dancers even injured their arm for the rest of the weekend during one of those moves. And now performers don't do that move anymore because of that, that performance and that injury. And, but we were screaming at the time. We didn't know he'd injured himself yet. And we thought it was just the most incredible, like one upsmanship where one performer had come out and done something. And now this other person came out and they were like battling, you know, you you can't, you can't connect like that without, you know, a deep understanding of the dance they're doing, you know? So Justin, this was years ago, but you're describing, uh, you have great vivid memory of a feeling how you felt watching yes, this. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's sort of the point. Thank you, Justin in St. Paul. Uh, Karen, what are you hearing his phone call? He, he, that touched him. <laughs> well, I think what I hear is what we always desire to do is uh, we want people to walk away feeling something. And sometimes it may be anger. Sometimes it may be confusion. Sometimes it may be awe. Sometimes that may be questioning, but mm-hmm. we want you to walk away with something mm-hmm. um, because otherwise um, I personally feel like I haven't successfully conveyed my idea. If you don't, even if it's a sense of beauty, mm-hmm. you know, again, you may not understand anything else, but you had this, you could feel this nice. thing. This has happened to so me. So that's our, that's our yeah, goal. Right. Has happened to me recently. Uh, Aparna, what do you think about what, what Justin is describing? He's still, it's like he, he's reliving it in his mind. Exactly. I love the intensity of that because obviously that feeling in that room was electric. And mm-hmm. in my dance form, we believe that the dancers are the medium between the community and the gods. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of channeling that kind of energy and that electricity is so important. But also this, as Karen was saying, that is our job. But at the same time, it's it's that human connection is what mm-hmm. we're really after. This idea that there's a transcendence that can happen that is just palpable in a room and there's musicians and dance and that and the performing arts can can do that and i think this beautiful layering of technique and discipline and abandon mm-hmm. can evoke that mm. let's uh, take a phone call from eaton prairie rachel's on the phone good morning rachel what do you want to share with us well thank you for talking about dance today i have been a long time dance lover Dance is truly the language of the soul, and it is truly um, the way that you can express feelings beyond words through music. And I have just personally loved, as a little girl, running up the stairs to Northrop Auditorium to see the Nutcracker Suite, which is coming to mind with this fresh snowfall this morning. (laughs) But I have to say that um, Game Changer, when I discovered Ragmala many years ago, literally over two decades ago, um, I fell in love. It is truly transcendent. It brings together not only, you know, music and dance and body, mind, and spirit. It truly is transcendent, and it builds bridges between cultures. They, the, the way that they've taken these performances and done collaborations with African dance groups, with other Asian dance groups, with jazz musicians, with poetry readings. It's just these wonderful bridges between other art forms. And then even within Ragamala, the dance itself, the way that they just beautifully have these expressions, again, beyond words. I've left performances just speechless with groups of people looking at each other going, wow, how do you put into words what we just experienced? That was amazing. Uh, Rachel. So I could go 
on and on. So you would have to give me the hook. Okay. Well, it's okay. But I just want to, Rachel, I just want to tell you, uh, Aparna is looking at me and she's looking down and she's very touched. Uh, What is it like to hear someone uh, who was really moved by what she saw on stage when when you and your dance company were performing? Well, thank you, Rachel. Your words are so (laughs) kind. And I just, I I love that you called in. Thank you. Um, Well, I would say that my initial reaction is, Oh, it's such a relief when somebody understands what you're trying to do. Right? You're putting these these forms together, and and your intent is 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 deep and organic, and you want to make an impact. And so, how right. wonderful that I feel that we've made an impact. That was part of a conversation I had this past year with two leaders of dance companies about the work that they are doing here in Minnesota to not only entertain us, but also educate and inform us about history and culture. My guests were Karen Charles, the Executive Artistic Director of Threads Dance Project, and Apana Ramaswamy, the Executive Artistic Director, Choreographer, and Principal Dancer with Ragamala Dance Company. Our time is up for today. Thanks for listening. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again soon. Did you know that if you miss one of our live 9 a.m. talk shows, you can still listen to the conversation on my podcast? Each weekday, I talk with guests and take your phone calls about life in Minnesota. Search for NPR News with Angela Davis wherever you get your podcasts and then listen when it's convenient for you.